0: This is Speak Easy Theology with Chris Green.
1: Chris, Bill, good to see you guys. It's it's been a while since we've recorded. I'm glad that we're back at it. Mm-hmm. And notice, notice, Bill's not saying so. Yeah, <laughs>
0: well, well, this was his idea.
1: Yeah, that I should say the reason that we're recording today, which I am grateful for, is. Bill texted us and said we need to record. He has some great ideas about the text that, is that he wanted to share. Bad. And I just and I just found out I'm preaching this Sunday, so I'm I'm glad we're talking about it. I'm gonna I'm gonna hand it over to you, Bill. I did not say I had good ideas. I thought it was implied, but
2: I would never imply that I have any good ideas, and if I had a good idea, I wouldn't involve Chris Green in it, only to (laughs) find out that it wasn't a good idea. Yikes. So here's what our text exchange looks like. I say, I've been sensing something along the lines of how the gospel announcement, Romans chapter 8, cultivates a slow progressive goodness in us, parable of the sower, and slowly turns the swords of competition, Jacob and Esau story, into the plowshare of a shared life. Chris's response to that was, It'll be fun. Pray I feel better. <laughs> and what I heard there was: for the sake of Pastor Bill's church, pray that I feel better from this <laughs> migraine and help him not preach what it was he was going to preach. <laughs> Oh, my gosh, guys. Let's just get to it, for God's sake. All right, so this yeah. would be, like, almost a good old-fashioned version of what you guys used to do back when. Like, I just – I want to ask Chris questions about these texts, uh, specifically the Genesis 25 text, uh, Jacob and Esau's birth, as well as the selling of the birthright, and Romans 8 uh you know god works all things together for good i have my patented question that i always ask you chris the way i frame it now in these very popular stories what are the things you don't want to hear Mm. if somebody's going to prepare a sermon on romans 8 on the story uh where the famous line is jacob i've loved esau i've hated even the parable of the sower, which is, I mean, even from Jesus's own lips, this is the parable that sets the stage for how we understand parables. Mm-hmm. How do you not want to hear these stories? I feel like that would be a good way to begin is take off the table things that you've seen put on the table with these stories that aren't the best readings of them.
0: Sure. Well, I think if we start with, I mean, there's too much on the table to take off in one conversation. <laughs> these are these are such they're they're common texts, you know, texts that are are familiar to us, at, especially Romans eight, but also the Jacob Esau contrast. As you're saying, like even if this text is not read closely, we do often you know, kind of call back to this story to Esau and Jacob, kind of from their birth being in conflict.
2: Do you want me think... to start reading the Genesis 25 text, and then you could stop me, or how do you want to do it?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's good.
2: So these are the uh, lectionary texts for this coming Sunday. Uh, one of them is Genesis 25, 19 to 34, and Chris, I'll just, you know, I'll pause, and you can ask me to keep going, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. The daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban the Aramean to be his wife and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca his wife conceived the children struggled together within her and she said if it is thus why is this happening to me so she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her two nations are in your womb And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger.
0: Yeah, why don't you finish the passage and then we'll comment on it.
2: So it runs through verse 34, right? It does. There's There's a clean break here. So it says, When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And then there's a break, and then the story of Esau selling his birthright to Jacob comes next, and that's part of the text.
0: Yeah, so before you read that, I'll just say, on the one hand, you've got a tradition that reads these texts as elect, non-elect paradigm, right? So that there are those, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. You mentioned that before, that Paul will take up in Romans, and a kind of flat, I think unimaginative reading of election that doesn't really pay attention to what the text is saying, that assumes, you know, there are some people who are favored and others who are disfavored. Some people are in, other people who are out. So I think that's a that's a deeply problematic reading that most of the people in our circles don't hold, but there are plenty of people who do hold it, right? I think in, in the circles I've moved in, this is less about election and more about the separation between those who get it and those who don't. So even though they would never say God loves some and not others or that God elects some to salvation and others to reprobation, they would say some people just don't get it. Some people just don't they don't have the faith or they don't live faithfully that may be true, but that's so untrue to what the text is doing, right? This story is up to so much more than simply pointing out a son who doesn't get it, or, you know, a son who's unruly and irresponsible. Those readings kind of boil down to, at the popular level, quote-unquote Calvinists and quote-unquote Armenians, right? People who are arguing for predestination and those who are arguing for free will. And all of that's bogus. I mean, all of that is just completely misguided. So I think any reading that's used to support something in that paradigm, you know, again, whether you're affirming election or not, whether you're affirming free will or not, all of that's a mistake. It's a misreading of this text, and it's a theological you know, misconception. Like th-
2: those terms don't actually hold. Care to elaborate more? <laughs> No, no, not yet. So all the foreshadowing going on in these in these texts about the boys who are struggling uh within the womb and God declaring, you know, that the younger will serve the older Isaac loving Esau because he ate of his game. Well, let's talk about that verse right there. I feel like and I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like so much swings on verse 28, like the verse that separates the end of that story with the selling of the birthright. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Yeah. And it's you know the word "but" there is Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Mm-hmm. Would would you say that that's a a pivotal verse? Does that have a lot of like, pun intended? Is there a lot of pregnancy in that verse?
0: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think it it points to. Kind of a deep dysfunction. I mean, one one of the things that kind of moves all of the stories in Genesis is the what we would call like systemic systemic dysfunction in the families, where there's rivalry and suspicion and betrayal and deception, kind of constantly. I mean, you see it, for example, Abraham and Sarah when they're about to pass into Egypt and Abraham says to Sarah, you know, we have to tell them that you're my sister. Can, you know, can we do it this way? Tell them that you're my sister so that they don't kill me and take you from me knowing that you're my wife. And that I mean that's relatively minor compared to what happens, right, between Jacob and Esau. So these these kinds of conflicts are are everywhere. Of course, I mean I should have started with Cain and Abel, right? That the the first family like right from the jump why is it that eve is being tempted without adam there then why does adam so quickly blame her you know in the moment of confrontation they have their children and one kills the other and there's no mention of them confronting cain or grieving abel it's deeply dysfunctional all the way through and this this story continues that and it points to the ways in which these boys they're already fighting in the womb but then when they're born that fight kind of continues in the way that they're loved differently by their parents and apparently for different reasons right like there's a way in which it seems isaac's love is pretty twisted you know he loves
2: him because
0: at least at least there's a suggestion of that
2: yeah I mean at first glance well I mean throughout the story there seems like there's quite a bit of competition between all different kinds of people and it seems that way like you just pointed out from Adam and Eve like the minute the minute the Lord came into their the garden there was competition between them you know she made me do it the serpent made me do it so there's competition between Adam and Eve there's competitiveness between Adam and Eve and creation. Right. And then obviously in this story, the brothers are striving together in the womb and Isaac loves Esau because there's something Esau is producing, but Rebecca loves Jacob. And it seems like Isaac's love for Esau is in competition with Rebecca's love for Jacob, which seems like there's some competitiveness between Isaac and Rebecca. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Right. And so, it reminds me of the James 4 verse, and I, I think it's James 4, verse 1 or something. But what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that you're at war within your passions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, is that like a fair read here? Like, are, is this supposed to be pointing out the competitiveness that lies within our human relationships and maybe even also the competitiveness that lies within ourselves mm-hmm. over our own selves?
0: Yeah, no, I are think that, yeah. yeah. I think that's exactly right. There's there's kind of deep conflict both within and between us. Like we we're we're set against ourselves, and set against those who are around us because we are at odds with ourselves. I, I think that's absolutely running. That that theme is running through all of these stories. There's an ambiguity too. I should have um, Robert Al, Robert Alter points this out. That that line the older shall serve the younger in hebrew it can be read the older the younger shall serve and his contention is that the the syntax is like designed to be ambiguous right so there's a there's a word that's given but it's not a clarifying word it's a word that you you're not sure what it means it's not clear it's not a clear word so there's there's a kind of division that's hidden inside of this or this ambiguity
2: or this confusion this uncertainty about what the prophecy even means do you can so again can you can you take this like can we put ourselves in the in the person of rebecca and just talk about like this inner conflict that we have within ourselves and then if you're going to take it that way what what does this reveal about that inner conflict would you say
0: yeah so if we get if we get there if we if we start to let the text work on us well right so we kind of started with what are bad readings of this text i think what you're asking here is a good question like what why does the text keep drawing attention to the conflict in these characters in between them what is it trying to show us right about it and i i think it helps to just follow the flow of the story and notice you know, what we're being told, right? So the this, this section is introduced with the claim that we're, we're going to hear about the descendants of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham, right? And we're told that Isaac is 40 years old when he marries. He marries Rebecca. He prays. So we, we have two prayers here. But notice how they play out, like the answers to those prayers. Isaac prays because she's barren, and the Lord grants his prayer. But not immediately. I mean, it's years and years and years, I think 20 years, before the prayer is answered. Right. So in one line, the text says, "You know, Isaac prays, the Lord grants his prayer. But that, if we're not careful, that reads like, you know, an an event that unfolds quickly, right? That that presents itself, that happens suddenly, but it doesn't at all. And Rebecca conceives, but her conception is, is incredibly painful, right? So she's got a long period of barrenness, finally broken by pregnancy, but that pregnancy is itself incredibly painful. And so she says... If, it's, if this is how it is going to be, why do I live? She's somehow anticipating that this conflict already going on in her womb is going to carry on into the lives of these children when they're born. And we know the answer is that it is going to be this way. It is going to be this way. This, this struggle is going to continue. And one way to, to jump ahead a little bit. One way of reading that line, Rebecca loves Jacob, is to say that she does not continue to hold the struggle. She sides with with one side of herself. And Isaac sides with the other. But at this point, she can't do that. They're both within her. right? And it's overwhelming. Um, how am I going to live with this? And so she prays. We we often kind of i think slide over the the ways in which they are described as naming these children and notice we finally yeah we finally get that that line isaiah was i mean isaac was 60 when she bore him so he's 40 when he prays the prayer or when he marries he's 60 when she is born or when she gives birth and then they name these children and the naming seems superficial, right? They're just naming them for what is happening at the moment of birth. Not, not, I mean, nonchalant doesn't quite get at it. It's, it's, it's almost frighteningly casual given the stakes of the moment. I mean, they've been praying for what, 20 years for this to come. And in all of those months of struggle through the pregnancy, why, why not pray for a name? I mean, we know, for instance, Isaac's name was given by the Lord. He was, his parents were told what to name him. So why doesn't Isaac say to the Lord, hey, what do you want me to name these children? And his, his father, right, has his name changed by God. Isaac can't have not known that names were significant. And of course, Jacob's name is going to get changed.
2: It's interesting because you see, so Isaac prays, he wants an answer fast. God's response, 20 years in the making. Rebecca prays, she wants an answer fast. God's response is about nations that are going to come from her, not even about the two kids. So again, his response has to do with generations and genealogies, not just, you know, the next three months or so. Then... They name their children super fast based on what's happening. And we see their children making decisions super fast based on what's happening. I mean, it's it's one thing that Esau sold his birthright so fast. It's another thing that Jacob immediately goes for the jugular. He's like, oh, you're hungry? Let me have your inheritance. It's like, right, right, right. you know, yes. And then if you want to just we don't have to read it yet but if you want to look at Jesus and what he's saying in the in the gospel he's saying the way to understand all the parables I'm going to teach is to understand this parable of a man who went out to sow and you see Jesus being the revelation of being the revelation of God in this story uh, in Genesis moving and talking about the kingdom as if it's something that is very very slow in developing like the way that you understand all parables is by understanding this rhythm of sowing waiting and reaping Mm -hmm. and the slow cultivating nature of it all. Yeah. And so it seems like there may be so, so if you take it and I'm just taking this one little strand, just riffing off of this one little strand. If you take the dichotomies between the, the, our desire to speed things up and God's, I don't want to say desire to slow things down, but just to move at the pace that he moves at, which mm-hmm. right, is slower than what we're looking for. And then you look at Jesus' parable in the biggest possible picture about just the time the kingdom of heaven takes. And then with those two poles, you look at Romans 8, all things work together for good. It's just amazing how when we quote that verse, we think that's a tomorrow thing. Mm-hmm. But I think, um, who was the person you did that podcast with, Chris, um, about how not to handle trauma a few few weeks ago? Uh, Bill Buecher. He Bill in that podcast summed up fundamentalism in, in a way that it made so much sense to me, and it was such a simple sentence, but he said, fundamentalism is a theology defined by a lack of patience. Yeah. yeah. Everything is about understanding this now, having this happen now, we can fix this problem now. And it's like a theology built around speed. Yes. I see this theme here about like inner conflict and our and our desire to want to get rid of this inner, resolve this inner conflict as fast as we possibly can. And it seems like God... We're talking about what's happening in our life now, and God's talking about nations hundreds if not thousands of years from now. Jesus is talking about sowing. And so obviously all things working together for good might not be the instantaneous result we're looking for. Do do you think the story is helping us slow down in some of those areas? I mean, is that like too superficial of a reading?
0: No, I'm... I think there's more to the reading than that, but that's absolutely essential to it. But I I think it is, it is about time and timing, but it is also about what, well, let me put it like this. So it's not just that they get what they're asking for later than they expected. Okay. They don't quite get what they're asking for at all. Hmm. Right. So it's, It is about time, but it isn't only about time. What is happening with those boys, that conflict is not going to be resolved. And if you notice, again, the text is is careful what Isaac and Rebecca pray for. Like, so Isaac knows that she is barren and he prays for his wife and she conceives. She is overwhelmed by the conflict, right? If this is going to be the way it is, how can I live? And she goes to inquire of the Lord, but notice we're not told what she asks. Is she asking, will I live? Is she asking why am I in, why is this so conflicted? this pregnancy so painful? Why are these boys? In fact, the way the story is told, she doesn't know that there are, that there are twins. She just knows that the that there is pain, and then when the time comes to give birth, there are twins, right? So she seems to learn at that moment hmm. that there are twins. So again, what what is she inquiring? What is she praying about? We don't know. And and then of course you get that strange sequence of naming, and then the the pregnant. Description of Isaac loving one and Rebecca loving the other—that's meant to, of course, harken back to previous stories, but it's also meant to tell us that there's some way in which they're not there's something too immediate, too well in the language of Romans, too fleshly about the way that they're living, and so what they're asking for. Is in relation to that. So in the language of Romans, they're, they're asking for flesh. God is working spirit. It isn't just that they're given what they're asking, they're, they've asked for later, they're given spirit instead of flesh.
2: Could you almost see it here as uh, like, I guess, I mean, like maybe like a thin example would be Zechariah versus Elizabeth. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Zachariah versus Mary.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Luke one. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And so you have like, you have Isaac praying for a specific thing. You have Isaac loving Esau because of a specific thing, but then you have Rebecca inquiring ambiguously mm-hmm. and loving Jacob for seemingly larger, more deep, more rich reasons because of who he is not, not his productivity or whatever. And so, can you almost look at Rebecca and see, like, almost like a Marian example already beginning to develop here, where she seems to maybe be more in tune with that slow, methodic, this could be bigger than the moment where Isaac's a little bit wrapped up into it?
0: Maybe. I mean, I think the story is designed to kind of allow for multiple readings, but I think that is a viable one that rebecca has a depth to her that isaac just lacks right that isaac is not he, he, again if we if we read it that way the flesh spirit dichotomy is between isaac and
2: rebecca before before i ask uh, another question crisper what are you what are you thinking about here you got your you have your hand over your mouth like the scholar that you are contemplative deep
1: what are your thoughts? Oh man, I feel anything but scholarly. I feel exactly like I felt at the beginning of this, which is, oh my gosh, I still have nothing <laughs> to preach on. <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of spinning over here. I'm trying to figure out what I feel about these texts.
2: What I what I talked about last week and I want to ask Chris, a question here. What I talked about last week was very simple about how the being internally restless is one of the things that leads to a lack of patience. So like uh, being unresolved on the inside will lead us to wanting to resolve as much as we can on the outside to just grasp at some sense of control. So I'm a mess on the inside, so I'm just going to try to fix things around me, fix people, fix situations, and just kind of try to establish some control for myself and I feel like I want to continue this week to talk about this inner restlessness that we all are feeling that people feel all the time and ways in which that we ways in which we try and resolve it fast and quickly that could be harmful and ways that we need to Let it be what it is and wait for the moments where God shows up for us in that turmoil. So that's like a personal sense of what I'm feeling when I read this text. I'm feeling in me just kind of the analogy about this this inner conflict between Jacob and Esau being an inner restlessness that we carry within ourselves. And a, and a desire to want to fix it, resolve it, get rid of it. Read my psalm for the day, and and you know walk in the victory of God. And how that's brought a lot of trouble into people's lives. Like we don't know how to process very well. We don't know how to be processed very well, um, and work through things slowly. Is there is there anything to be said here about that?
0: Oh sure, 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 sure. And I think you know you've already named it with the call to patience. I mean.
2: There, there is a
0: way in which there, there, it's just not possible, right, to live the life of faith without without living a life of patience, without patience with God and patience with ourselves and patience with our neighbors. We have to be prepared for God to take his time, right? I mean, Ecclesiastes. But I'm hesitant to set, to leave it at that because I think we're liable to hear that as simply saying, we still know basically what's going on. It's That's, just taking yeah. a little longer than normal. And what I'm suggesting the texts are saying is you don't know what's going on and you cannot know what's going on.
2: That's what I want to hear from you. Like you're, you're, you're right now. Like, I feel like this is what I was wanting to get to here is I want, I want this conversation about patients to not have time frame be the factor. Like how can we talk about, Patience or a lack of patience, not so much in terms of like flat linear like chronological time, but something deeper, like something something more rich, more deep, more powerful than just waiting or, yeah. or not being able to wait. Like where where can yeah. that patience conversation come from that's deeper than that?
0: Yeah. So I, I think if we hear patience not as sheer endurance. But as openness to surprise, as openness to what God is actually doing rather than what I expected him to do and being able to push through the disappointment of what God is doing, not being what I right, Like how how when I have my expectations geared and then God's work not only takes longer than I expected, but actually brings about something I did not expect. Am I patient enough to let the gift he gives me mature, recognizing that it is a gift, even if it's not the gift that I wanted, or even know how to receive joyfully? Opening ourselves up to suffering the grace God gives us, not simply suffering the time it takes for grace to work. This is one of the places where the lectionary doesn't help us. Because it, it jumps over the details in the text that tell us how the disciples were mishearing what Jesus is saying. Right, so in the in the lectionary, right, we, we get Matthew 13, 1 to nine, and then we skip ten to seventeen, and we pick up in eighteen to twenty three Why don't you read ten to seventeen if you've got it there? Matthew ten, I mean Matthew thirteen, ten to seventeen. And Can I just
2: hear about the irony in the lectionary text? Like this whole conversation is about moving at God's pace and not skipping over things. And the lectionary is like, Yeah, whatever. We're yeah, whatever, we gotta get through this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Then the disciples came and asked him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has been it has not been given. For to those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive, and hearing they do not listen nor understand. With them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that says, You will indeed listen but never understand, and you will indeed look but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes, so that they might not look with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Jesus starts by pay attention
0: by saying pay attention listen a sower went out to sow and that that listen is a clue to what is about to happen and of course the irony is we hear this as a straightforward parable about sowing and reaping if you sow good things you get good things if you sow bad things you get bad things and and we hear it as a description of predictable patterns right Th- this is the way in which god works you sow seeds you get harvests and the more seeds you sow the greater the harvest but if you if you pay attention to what jesus says as he tells you to he says a sower went out to sow as he sowed some seeds fell on a path other seeds fell on rocky ground so there's a there's a suggestion here that the sower is sowing the seed is falling places the sower does not quite intend, right? It's falling on the path. It's falling on rocky ground. And, and these, these seeds that fell on rocky ground, they don't have a lot of soil. They spring up quickly because they have no depth. And I think this is, among other things, this is Jesus telling the disciples, the understanding that comes to you quickest in what I'm saying to you is like that seed. And then other seeds fall among thorns, other seeds fall on good soil. Notice not that the sower sows the seed in good soil, the seeds just happen to fall there. right? So there's a, a haphazard dimension to this. And that brings forth grain. But even the seed that falls in good soil, there's an unpredictability to it. Some is some comes back a hundredfold, some 60, some 30, if you have ears here. And again, I don't want to overstate the case. I'm not trying to to mock anyone. But there are plenty of folks in the circles I've grown up in who read this parable as God telling you how to get the outcome you want. And even better than the outcome that you want. Right? Sow these seeds and you're going to get what you want. And you can get what you want a hundredfold. You just have to wait on God's timing. I think the point of the parable is we don't even know what this sowing really is. Seed falls in good soil, and even then, the harvest is unpredictable. This is not a parable about predictable
2: patterns you can manipulate for the outcomes you desire. You could almost see three different ways that we could live an impatient life in those three soils, too. Like, Mm. the first one being just entirely closed off to to any answer beyond the one that you're you've pre-programmed is the way it's supposed to be like just you're impatient in the sense that you're impenetrable no one can influence you no one can move no one can converse into your life you're just impenetrable and i mean like I, i i've been that way i'm sure my wife could attest from time to time um then there's the second soil where it's like impatience in terms of speed like that like you said the the understanding of my dilemma that comes to me immediately i go running with that right away as soon as something makes sense as soon as something feels good as soon as some i can get my head wrapped around something i'm that's what god told me i'm going with that Mm -hmm. and then the third one would maybe even speak what you said much earlier chris about expectation like the 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 cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches like the idea that like I know what the answer to prayer is going to be which is for us usually rooted in those things and I just got to out I just got to like wait long enough and then I'll get those things that I'm looking for and odds are those things are generally related to the deceitfulness of riches and so you could almost see three different ways that we could live impatiently and then maybe the surprises even in harvest you still can't do those three things like even in the harvest the harvest is also organic and random and has seasons to it that aren't that aren't definable or controllable which i i mean that's such a good lesson for especially being a pastor to sit there and say even even the season of getting it right the season of harvest has an ambiguity to it that you can't model it you can't package it you can't figure it out and sell it and so even in that fourth soil you can still see a a way to live impatiently kind of revealed in there as well I I actually think that's the point of the parable And,
0: and this is that Jesus is telling them you think if you can just figure out the right seed and the right soil and the right season you'll know what's happening the, the point of this passage the point of the whole gospel of Matthew is you don't know what is happening even when you have the right seed in the right soil in the right season and the right sower you know like it, it just it just doesn't work that way because what the spirit is doing is more than flesh can ever catch up to can, can ever calculate or foresee and I, I think that comes clear. So to me, I hear what you're saying, and I think that's a that's a helpful framing. But I think the, the weight of the parable, the reason Jesus has to say, listen to what I'm saying, is it's actually a caution about the, the good soil. Yeah. So I, I think there are lots of ways in which this parable works, right? So I don't want to... you know I, I was taught in Bible school that every parable has a single meaning, but that's complete nonsense, right? I mean, there are parables precisely their power is that they they cannot be reduced in that way but i i don't want to miss the the fact that the sower is not planting seeds seeds are falling so the disciples hear this and notice what do they do why do you speak in parables so they're they're frustrated because they don't think that there's a harvest From Jesus' teaching, that there would be if Jesus would just stop talking in parables. Like they're impatient with their own rabbi. Like, listen, why are you talking in parables? And Jesus' answer is, I think, sincere, but means something very different from what they think it means. So he says, To you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. But to them, it has not been given. For to those who have, more will be given. They will have an abundance. Those who have nothing, even what they have, will be taken away. But blessed are your eyes, for they do see. Your ears, for they do hear. Many righteous and many prophets and righteous people have longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. It seems like Jesus is saying something along those lines of election, non-election, salvation, reprobation, that there are those who are inside because God has chosen to give the secret to them. And there are those who are outside because God is not has no desire for them to be among his people. That means the disciples, those who have been given the secret, are the ones who understand what's taking place. And they, their eyes see and their ears hear. And then he immediately tells another parable, which this is beyond the reading for the day. But this is... The kingdom of heaven is compared to someone who sows good seed in his field. Everybody is asleep. An enemy comes and sows weeds among the wheat. Then he puts another parable and then another parable. And verse 34, Jesus, we're told that Jesus said everything to the crowds in parables. And without a parable, he said nothing. Right, Which is fulfilled another saying. Then he leaves the crowd, verse 36, and go into the house. And his disciples approach him and say... Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Which means they still don't understand. So they've been given the secret. But they're no closer to understanding what these parables mean than anybody else is. They don't don't know what he means. And in fact, what's going to unfold over the next few chapters. So that's Matthew 13. And we build up. This is right before Matthew 16 where Peter will make his confession. We build up to the Canaanite woman who seeks Jesus out in when he's in Tyre and Sidon and says have mercy on me lord son of david my daughter is tormented so what ends up happening right in the story is jesus is saying i'm only talking in parables because i don't want them those outsiders who've not been given the secret i don't want them to understand but you've been given the secret but what plays out over the next few chapters, is the disciples don't get it. They don't understand what he's doing. They don't recognize what's happening. And it's this Canaanite woman, a woman whose people were condemned, you know, at least in a superficial reading of the text, were, were supposed to be slaughtered completely. She understands not only who Jesus is, son of David, but also what he's like. She's she's going to persist because she understands he's going to do what she needs. So somehow that seed has fallen on Canaanite soil and is bringing forth a fruit that it's not bringing in the lives of his own disciples. It's the outsiders in the Gospel of Matthew, and and again we saw this right in the genealogy, right with with people like Rahab or Tamar. It's the Magi who are the first to come and do him honor at the at his death it's the roman centurion who recognizes who he is right so over and over and over and over again in the gospel it's the people who are not in good soil who actually end up yielding fruit there's deep irony here we don't even know what good soil is we don't understand how god's seasons work and until we allow the spirit to alter our expectations at that level. We're still assuming as the disciples do through most of this story that we know basically what matters. It's just a matter of getting our hands on it, right? A matter of controlling the outcome, which is exactly what Peter tries to do. He puts his hands on Jesus to try to make him, he tries to pull Jesus in line, right?
2: Because he thinks he knows what needs to happen. I can't sidestep the irony about what's happening in my mind, as I'm sitting here saying, I just want to know what I'm going to preach on on Sunday, <laughs> and, and now being terrified to <laughs> ask one more time, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you got you have you have the let's just say for now you have the Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Rebecca story, and it's a story of of inner conflict. And the dangers of seeking to resolve conflict quickly and according to, like, some internal pre-prescribed way that God is going to do it. And then you have the parable of the sower, which Jesus is using to just, you know, open up our lives to the 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 surprise of God, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have this very, very famous text, Romans eight one to eleven. There is therefore no condemnation. Set your mind on the things of the spirit, not on the things of this earth. And obviously, I texted you earlier today and said again, what do you? What would you not want to hear? Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's Romans eight that can play that final, that that third chord that could make this a harmony here between the the chord of Genesis 25, the chord of the parable of the sower. Now, here's this text that is used, read, interpreted a lot. Um, what, what do you see? And I know you don't normally do this when you guys do the lectionary conversation, but specifically asking you, like, what do you see in that Romans 8, 1 to 11? that brings good music to the conversation that we're having now, the, the ambiguity of the Genesis 25 text about trying to resolve inner conflict, the intentions of Jesus to make sure we don't quickly understand things and say things in ways that brings us to the end of our understanding. Where does Romans 8 fit in here? Where, where does it give us a place to, to rest our head, if at all?
0: yeah well, I, I no I think it absolutely does and the, and the place is well not so much to rest, but to be at peace with the son who has no place to put his head right mm. to, to 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 have the peace that he offers, not the peace that our flesh thinks it needs right there's no there's no resolve except the resolve of confidence in the spirit for whom all things are possible, because the spirit is the creator, a way to a note to hit to bring into harmony these texts, which I I think both, as I read them, at least both Genesis and Matthew are reminders to us that God's ways are not our ways, that what God is up to is something very different from what we're expecting, no matter who we are, whether we are Isaac or Rebecca, God's purposes are eluding us because they're too good. What Paul is saying in Romans is there is a way to yield yourself to the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, knowing you don't know, but making peace with it. Like making peace with the wonder that God's ways are not our ways, right? That, that God is working at depths and on scales that simply do not track for us, right? So if we're thinking according to the flesh, then it does matter that we find the right seed and the right season and the right soil. But if we're in relation with the Creator God, then he makes those things that are not as though they were right he can raise up children from stones, like he doesn't need the right seed in the right season and the right soil to bring about a certain outcome. He can create from nothing he has done is doing that he is the the one who raises the dead. The irony is the more attached we are to finite cause effect the more det- more certain that we we are that we know what causes what and how to get the effects we want by by triggering the causes that bring about the effects we want right? finding the, the pattern that we can we can control in order to bring about our long for outcomes like that is to live according to the flesh and it will always end in death what we have to do instead is trust ourselves to this God who does what is beyond what we could ask or think that is what Paul means by living in the spirit that's what Paul means by the life of faith right there's a there's a kind of recognition it's not that we're blind to those patterns it's not that we don't understand cause and effect and the predictable results of living in a particular way it's just that we're also not bound by it and we and we recognize that god is not bound by it even
2: where we are you know a long time ago it might have been it might have been a sermon you preached in colorado springs do you remember the sermon you preached about uh it was a painting and it was who is this who comes from edom
0: Yeah, yeah yeah yeah
2: as as I was as you're talking and as I'm thinking about the surprising resolve of this, you know, Jacob, I've loved Esau, I have hated, and I, I thought of that sermon about who is this that comes from Edom, and why is there why are his garments red? Mm-hmm. Where where do we see a surprising resolve that that's so good? It it, it allows us to get rid of those those superficial readings of is this election is this you know free will and like into something so much more deeper like in what ways does jesus resolve the tension between edom or esau and and jacob and and throughout the course of this narrative yeah so i mean in that image of
0: the divine warrior coming from edom covered in blood that can read like the divine warrior has gone to edom and destroyed all of them. Like he's eradicated Esau and and he's covered in that blood. But of course, for Christians reading that as Jesus, the one who's coming from Edom, as, as seen in that David Jones painting you're talking about, then the blood he's covered in is his own blood. Yeah. Which means he is Esau and Jacob, right? That that conflict is in him and and in him has been resolved, right? In him has truly been brought to harmony, so that in Christ, Jacob and Esau are at peace. So I think that our and that of course is an eschatological hope, right? That that in him all things are going to be reconciled. Every people, every tribe, every tongue, all of these things are going to be resolved. But when we're where Paul goes next in Romans, right? Romans nine to eleven, which you've mentioned a couple times. With the Jacob I have I loved, Esau I have I hated. The way that Paul works that out is through history, there's conflict. Jacob is loved, Esau is hated. Israel is taken into captivity in Egypt and then delivered from captivity. Right? Pharaoh is hardened and Israel is delivered. But in terms of what God is doing, by the time we get to the end of Romans 11, what God is doing is having condemning all so that he can have mercy upon all. So that everything that's happening to the elect is for the sake of the non-elect. And everything that's happening to the non-elect is for the sake of the elect. So that whatever God is doing for me is as much for you as it is for me. And wherever I'm resisting God, God uses my resistance for your good and for mine. And wherever I'm yielded to God and obeying God, God uses my obedience for your good as well as mine. But what we, what we see, we're in history standing where we are, watching causes and effects play out watching those patterns, we're standing behind the tapestry and all we see are the threads jumbled and twisted. We're not seeing what God is actually making of them. Right? We can't see on the other side of the tapestry yet. So what we're looking at from this side, the side of flesh, is God has separated this from that, the sheep from the goats, Israel from the nations, you know, the, the remnant from... The the nominal et cetera. Like we see separations and divisions, we see God, you know, working one way with his left hand and another way with his right hand. But what Paul recognizes is that by faith we know that in the Spirit what God is doing is harmonizing, beautifying, reconciling, healing, and and to live in the Spirit is to know that that's happening and to know that I can trust that is happening, even where I cannot see that larger pattern like I won't be able to know how it's working but I know that that is what he's working for that's patience right patience is I trust the 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 pattern of what God is doing in the world as God sees it is good is truly good for all we really can trust what God is doing with what we're doing is something very different from the outcomes that are brought about by what
2: we're doing this is this is so like this is gonna sound funny but it's it's hilarious the the lack of re like the lack of resolve that i feel like i always look forward as a preacher to the moment where you get that hook you know like you know the moment both of you know it when you have a lot of information you're taking a lot of notes about the text and then like one day whether it's It could be in your sleep it could be driving in the car but you get this one thought that like brings it all together and it's a rather satisfying moment when you can like see the sermon go from a line to a circle yeah yeah that's i'm i'm fighting i i feel like the irony for this one is that like the point is that our obsession to get resolve leads us into all kinds of bad places yeah and the the realization that Jesus is marching through are unresolved.
0: And the answer, Bill, that's exactly right. Because what Paul is saying is the ways of flesh all end in death. Sooner or later, they all end in death. And it doesn't matter if you are a farmer who figures out the mechanics so well that you have barns filled and overflowing with harvest. You're going to recognize the futility of all that you've done does not matter when you're talking about outcome. Success matters. But in terms of what God is doing in the world, we can never anticipate how our failures might matter and how our successes might prove to be problematic. Because our God is a God who does the impossible, a God who raises the dead, a God who creates from nothing, a God who's found by those who do not seek him. And that kind of unpredictability means that we should be thoughtful, but we should never be enslaved to, again, patterns of predictability. To We should never think that if we could just figure out the right seed and the right soil and the right season, we would get the harvest we need, and that would change the world for good. Because that isn't actually how it works, right? That's to underestimate the power of sin, and it's to underestimate the mystery of God's goodness. It's to underestimate the complexity of, of human conflictedness. So it it's not that, again, I don't want this to be heard. I don't want to, I don't want to be heard saying something like success doesn't matter. No, it matters, but it doesn't matter ultimately because God is the God who raised the dead. So I, I think if I were preaching, the line I would take from the text is Esau's line. I'm about to die. What Use is a birthright to me. Like, I think that's the wrong question to be asking. Because I think that question about use betrays an overcommitment to the flesh, an overcommitment to outcomes we can control. You know, what Jesus does is not fight with the Father about the usefulness of his birthright, he just remains faithful. And of course, that is precisely how
2: he delivers us from death. It's so cool what you just said there because the birthright is as unusable as it is sellable. Yes. So the idea of saying, well, I might as well give up this birthright. I can't use it is as impatient as somebody saying, well, I can buy it." it. It can't be used and it also can't be purchased. That's right. And so you see them both sort of like almost like creating like this synthetic life. Like they're 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 making, yeah, they're making something unnatural, artificial happen. Yep. That's right.
0: And and again, the reason we do that, I mean Bill, that's a really important point. Because the reason we create artificial patterns is that the natural world doesn't actually it isn't controllable in the way that we want it to be. So we create
2: artificial worlds that are, we think, controllable. And And that's the way of the flesh, the way of the law in Romans 8. Yeah, well,
0: yes, exactly. It's the law of sin and death. So we end up, it's a perversion of the law brought about by the weakness of the flesh and the powers of sin that we then use to create patterns for ourselves that are more predictable, that are more outcome controllable. And I mean, I think this is what a lot of our churches, we create spiritualities like that, artificial spiritualities that say, you, you put in this seed, in this soil, you'll get this outcome. And, I mean, we, we do this with parenting, with marriages, with jobs and careers, with a sense of personal fulfillment and calling. And it's all artificial. It's, it's false to what the spirit does. It's false to what nature does. That's just not how reality works, Even either naturally or divinely. Jesus fails. By any standard of worldly measurement, Jesus fails. All prophets do. And Calvin says this outright, right? Micah fails. What he's trying to do does not work. And of course, God tells Jeremiah that that's what's going to happen right up front. They're not going to listen to you. Same thing with Isaiah. These these people are not going to listen to you. I would add, even where it does work in the short run, in the long run, it still doesn't work, right? Like So even if you get it to, to work for a while, it's not going to keep working. And yet we don't lose heart, because God is the God who raises the dead. Jesus was not doing things that were useful, and precisely so, he was accomplishing the will of God in the world.
1: Brewer. Yeah, so I know I've not said anything in this conversation. <laughs> it's been great listening to you guys. Um, no, but what, what I'm thinking of right now in this moment, and thanks both of you just for talking through this and giving me time to, to think. A few months ago at, convocation, at the convocation for the diocese that I'm a part of, our, our bishop gave this call to the clergy there to a kind of holy indifference Mm, mm -hmm. and that's so much of yeah of what i'm hearing and i know that that language it has a it has a history and it's i think it's rooted in ignatian spirituality which i'm you know know very little about but but i have been talking to folks about it and people who i think live this in 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 certain ways and reading others who who are dead who i think kind of embody this and And that's what I'm so struck by is this kind of deep trust that they have. And this, you know, to your point earlier, Chris, this kind of recognition that my successes like my failures while consequential ultimately are are just not going to mean what I think they mean. That's right. Or what it seems that they mean right Mm -hmm. now. And that more deeply abiding within them, within these lives of holy indifference is a trust in who God is. Absolutely. And what God has promised to do. And I think that that, I mean, the way that that's striking me right now with the kind of spin that I have on my life is that i can be i can be liberated from so many of the things that i that i obsess about because i i just can't track all of that and i certainly can't control it yeah
0: that's right. And it's, man, absolutely right. And, and there's a way in which, like if we go back to the story of Isaac, I mean, he's, he's right to pray for Rebecca when she's barren, for her to have a child. Mm-hmm. What the mistake would be to think, oh, now that she's pregnant, everything will be all right. Yeah. right. Rebecca is right to go to God with an inquiry when she's conflicted. The mistake would be to think, okay, now that I've asked God about it, there'll, there'll no longer be conflict. It, Esau is right when he's hungry to ask for food. Mm-hmm. All of these fleshly things are real, like the, the pain of barrenness, the joy of pregnancy, the, the desperation of hunger, the, the pain of conflictedness, the, the need for God to respond to our fleshly needs is real and isn't going to go away. The key is to recognize, the, the, the key that I think Paul is pointing us to with talk about the Spirit, is to recognize that God is not bound to good soil and good seed and good seasons. God is not bound to our successes, and God is not in some ways bound by our failure, in other ways bound by our failures, right? That we, we can and should live as wisely as we, as we can. Try to be as successful as we can at the things that are ours to do, to do them well. And know right, that at the end of the day, what God is doing is not, is not tied up with or restricted in any way to cause-effect relationships. Austin Ferrer talks about how God's action comes to us not as the spring point of our causes, but as a finished product. God is not the the initiator of the causes that bring about the effects that we desire. What, what God does is something that's as different from causation as it is from effect. God is the creator. Volgakov uh, makes that distinction. God is not the causer of things. He's the creator of things.
2: Yeah. I mean, you, you see it, you see it so crystal clearly uh, as, as parents, right? Like, All day long, my two kids are going to – they're going to have better days than others. But every one of those days, they're going to go to bed as my kids, whether they're in the house or they're not in the house, whether they want my love or they don't want my love, right? They're going – each of these days are gonna end with me saying, Those are my kids and I'm as here from them on their on their good days as I am on their not so good days. And it's like they're still going to work and live and do right and do wrong and succeed and fail. But there's something before that and after that that is holding them in place. Mm-hmm. Like our love, mine and Jacqueline's love as parents go before and behind their their lives that they're trying to live. Yes. And they mm-hmm. they bookend the lives that they're trying to live. I've been reading this poet and philosopher, Benjamin
0: Fondon. He, he, would, he died in the Holocaust. He has this wonderful... His, he learned this from his teacher. There are two texts that are basic to everything else that Jews and Christians believe to be true, he says. And one of them is, for God, all things are possible, including the impossible. And I think we could put it like this in the terms of the text that are given to us. What Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau cannot believe is that all things are possible for God. We believe some things are possible for God if we set God up rightly. Right? If, if I put God in the right position, then God can come through for me. But I I, I think Fondan is right. Like I think, you know, Jesus is right for God all things are possible and that's not true within the logic of cause and effect or within the patterns of predictability but it's absolutely true in the logic of the story of the resurrection or the story of creation like for god all things are possible again and i think that is when we fail that is our hope and when we succeed that is our humility Remember that for God, all things are possible, that even your successes can't keep God from being good. In some ways, the worst thing that can happen for us is to find the right seed in the right season in the right soil, because we are almost certainly going to take that to mean we're now in control. And the outcomes we are producing or seeing happen because of our production are the fulfillment of what God is doing in the world. But God
2: doesn't need any of those things. So one of the things Brewer said that I loved was this this frees me from having to obsess so much. Yeah. How do you how do you not go from the extreme of obsession to saying it's it's just it's just a passive life? God's gonna do what he's gonna do. It doesn't matter if I do right or do wrong. He's gonna he's going to make it right. Like how where where do we get what what keeps us from those extremes? what keeps us from falling into pure passivity here. One thing to
0: talk about is the distinction Bonifer makes between penultimate and ultimate, that these things do matter. They just don't matter in a way that bounds or binds God. So they, they have consequences, you know, to use the language that Brewer used a moment ago, they're consequential, but they are not ultimately determinative of what God is doing in the world. And I think the instinct to wash our hands of it, you know, as Pilate does as the man who buries the seed or buries the, the talent like that. That's a sign that we still want to have. Control. I think once we realize, okay, I can live life freely. And if success comes wonderful, and if it doesn't, I won't fret. It actually should free us up to be even more confident in what we do in the world. Right to 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 write or sing or listen or dance or paint or whatever it is that is ours to do, to to love our wives and children and friends and to to live life to the full precisely because we can trust that whatever comes of this comes of this and God is God. So I, I don't think despairing of it i I think the temptation to despair only occurs to people who wanted control in the first place when we are able to be at peace knowing that for god all things are possible that peace should free us up to work to sow the seed knowing that the soil if it if this seed falls on rocky soil god is the god who does what we cannot if this seed falls on the good soil god does what we cannot And, and i mean this is what you see paul saying right I, you know, some preach Christ out of competition, rivalry, but I rejoice that Christ is preached, whether
2: of goodwill or not. Yeah. Whether it's
0: good soil or bad soil.
2: You see that in the in the prophets in the Old Testament. You know, they're still out there prophesying. You know, I'm glad that they're prophesying. Or you know, the disciples telling Jesus, you know, they're they're not with you, and he's like, you're either with me or against me. Like you you see that like that transcendence in those stories.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and to the point of, you know, Calvin's point about Micah, I mean Micah fails in a sense in his lifetime nobody does anything. Nobody responds apparently. But in Hezekiah's time they do. They recall the story of Micah and they repent. And of course right now you and I can read Micah and we can repent. So we, we, that's it's what we do still matters. We just can't anticipate how God takes what we do up into what he's doing. And
2: how Failure and our success in God's hand, who who
0: in God's hands, who knows what that might mean.
2: So let me ask you the, the final magic question here. Jacob I have loved, Esau I've hated, although Esau sought repentance with tears, he wasn't granted it. Where where's the good news for us here? Again, if we read it as
0: Jesus is Esau and Jacob, Esau coming to Jacob and Jacob coming to Esau, then there's a kind of repentance that God does not give us. Because that would actually inhibit our healing, right? There's there's a way in which what Esau is trying to do is get out of what he has lost, right? To to back out of the deal, so to speak. Mm. He's not truly asking for to be made into the man he's called to be. He's asking to have the pain removed from his foolishness, like or the consequences of his foolishness. He's not actually asking to be made wise he just doesn't want to pay for his foolishness yeah and i think that's a repentance god does not grant right god does not respond to
2: so there you go again though like we read he sought repentance and it wasn't given to him and we instantaneously come to that understanding of like oh so god didn't forgive him and we (laughs) we don't have space for the idea that no there's there's a kind of repentance that is us wanting just a redo, but we're not asking to be made new. Yes. I want that moment back, not I want to be a different person who would have handled that moment.
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly. And who not only would have handled that moment, but can be the kind of person now to make that moment right. Like, what do
2: I have to do to become the kind of person who can address and is in, in Hebrews, is that is that text in Hebrews about Esau not not being granted repentance though he sought it, is that referring to Isaac? Saying like Esau cried out to Isaac and said, Bless me, me also. And it's yeah, yeah. it's just describing the fact that Isaac
0: is saying there's nothing I can do.
2: So there's there's, there's also the idea there that like it's it's Isaac Who can't respond. who can't. Yes. But to the question that that provokes in your soul, well, then who can? It's the one coming from Edom with blood on his garments.
0: Okay. With his blood on his garments. Yeah.
2: Like his own blood. And I,
0: yes, I think that's exactly right. Like it, It is... Isaac can't... I mean, at least he says he can't undo what he did. I mean, who knows? I mean, I think the text itself is ambiguous about what Isaac could and couldn't do. But he says he can't do it. But of course, again, for God, all things are possible. Yeah, even the impossible. Even the impossible, and and we have to keep coming coming back to that. And so, just to take one more stab at your question about how do we not despair? What we do matters. We just cannot know how God is going to use what we've done for our good and the good of others, right? And if we're Pharaoh and and we're hardened, God is going to use that for our good and the good of others. That doesn't mean that we're not sinning or that we're not rebellious or that we should double down on it because there are consequences to that rebellion. I mean, Pharaoh's family, Pharaoh's people pay the price
2: for his hard-heartedness. Right, and I think just, just trying to learn off of what you're saying, it's probably part of the reason why we can't know how he's going to do that is because we would systematize that if we knew. Oh, absolutely. And that would become the new synthetic. Absolutely. That would we would, we would
0: create whole. an artificial... We'd we'd create a game of it, right? Where we would be able to predict a pattern of uh, predictability. We would set a pattern of predictability. And the spirit is not, the spirit blows where it wills, right? Like God is not patternable, right? Like God does not, God is absolutely faithful, but utterly unpredictable. That's what we have to come back to that God is a living God. He's, he is not to
2: be used, he's not useful. Fantastic. This was really, really good, really, really helpful. I uh Well, Brewer abandoned ship. He left. Uh, he put think- his computer upside down and took off.
1: <laughs> oh, you know I it's crazy, me.
2: Chris. You could see just being playful how you know Jesus falls on the road, on the dusty road to to Calvary, and you could see in some ways how he's the seed that fell along the path.
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: and his life seems to have sprung up so fast, shined for such a short amount of time only to be taken from him and you can see how he almost inhabits the soil that was shallow. Yeah. And then and maybe even more strikingly the seed that produces thorns. I mean, he's wearing them.
0: Absolutely. So you- I love that. that's that I mean that's that's playful, but it's playful in the best way. And I think it, it goes to my point, or what I think is the point of the text, which is the, there's irony here. This is not a parable about find the right soil and put good seed in it, and then you'll get what you want, maybe a hundredfold. The point is, this seed
2: is working because this sower is working in ways mm-hmm. you cannot imagine. So it's not a call to passivity. It's a call to say, get out there and work, and just know as your work falls in all these different places. The one who marches victoriously from Edom is 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 there for you. He's going to he's going to take this up into himself and make it and make it work. There won't be condemnation when this is over.
0: Yeah, for anyone. And and if your your failures will matter, your successes will matter. When you live well, it will matter, and when you live badly, it will matter. But those will matter in God's working in ways we cannot anticipate. That's right. Like I can't keep God from being God to anyone. I do have a say in how God has to be God to them. If I harm you, then God has to be the healer. Yeah, no, it, it will be God and God will be God. No matter how obstinate and stubborn I happen to be.
2: Or successful. Or successful, exactly. I think that's that's the part that is, is getting me. I act like in, in a riff on Sunday, I said, you know, we were talking, I was talking about like just funny, funny things about what a a lack of patience looks like, just kind of self-deprecating, joking about myself. And then I mentioned how I sometimes am prone to celebrating something that started well as if it finished well mm. and how that's also a lack of patience. Yes. Like the joke was like, okay, the New York Giants are up 17 points with five minutes to go. Surely they've won. It's like, no, be patient. They will find a way to lose this game, right? But it's like, it's the idea that like, this is a warning shot. This, this is a, it's almost like Mary's song. To, to those who are downtrodden, this is a, a gospel of hope. Mm-hmm. That he's going to do things with what's fallen apart in your life that you can't imagine. But it's also a yeah. warning shot to those who are getting it right, saying the things you've gotten right are as in need of his redemption as the things that you've gotten wrong are.
0: That's it. In fact, I, I think that's, a, that's exactly it. That how we live matters, but our successes are more dangerous than our failures in terms of what God is bringing about in the world. Yeah. Not that we shouldn't seek success. Not that we shouldn't seek to live well. Not that we shouldn't try to be good people, but again, it's the good people who are going to be the most resistant to what God is trying to bring about. Like That's, I think, the irony here and the paradox. Jesus
2: actually here. says it. They're closer to the kingdom of heaven than you are. Like He, he names that. Yes,
0: exactly. And I think that for this reason, right? That what God is doing, because you know in the spirit, what God is doing is so different from what we can see in the flesh, that the stronger we are in the flesh, the harder it is for us to accept it. The harder it is for me to realize why I need
2: the weakness of God. That's great. I'm going to pray a, uh, a prayer that Bishop Ed Gunger wrote. Hmm. If that's okay. I'd love it. Yeah. Dear Lord Jesus, help us.